Okay, well, hey, listen, guys, thanks so much for letting me come back and talk a little bit more about church history. I'm so grateful to Pastor Brian for letting me walk through the history of the church here in Steadfast. Two weeks ago, we were in the middle of the Middle Ages. We were talking about the Crusades. We were talking about the decline of the papacy. We were talking about the rise of scholasticism. To be honest, two weeks ago was very lecture-ish. Today will still be a little bit like that, but I hope to introduce you to some really compelling figures from the history of the church that I hope will encourage and motivate you in your own walk with the Lord. One of the things I love about studying church history is it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11, right? Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of faith, or sometimes we refer to the people in Hebrews chapter 11 as the heroes of the faith. It's where the author of Hebrews goes through and recounts all of the Old Testament saints, and he is really emphasizing their faith in God. And even more than that, he's emphasizing God's faithfulness to them, that as they trusted in the Lord and walked in obedience, the Lord honored their faith, even though it was a faith that ultimately looked to heaven. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, because we have these testimonies of incredible courage and faithfulness and fortitude, testimonies to the grace and faithfulness and goodness of God, we can run the race with endurance as we set aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And then in verse 2, the author of Hebrews goes on to say that as we run the race, we don't ultimately fix our eyes on any of those biblical saints. We fix our eyes on Christ the author and perfecter of the faith. I think that same thing is true in church history. When we see and hear the stories of faithfulness from individuals who walked with Christ and even died for Christ, it's not that we set our eyes on them, but rather that we look past them to the one to whom they also looked, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping this morning that by the time we get to the end, we'll have introduced you to some names that are familiar but names that ultimately point us past them to the Lord Jesus. Now, we're still in the Middle Ages this morning, and we're going to be setting the stage for the Reformation itself. We're not quite to the Reformation of the 16th century. In fact, in this particular lesson, we're looking at a group that is known as the forerunners to the Reformation, or sometimes they're called the pre-reformers. So I'm going to set the context for this, and then I'm going to introduce you to three specific historical figures this morning. And again, I hope you'll be encouraged as we go through this. Now, back in fall, when we started this series, I was talking about the fact that when we look in the New Testament, we see three essential categories of doctrine that define the Christian faith. And in fact, the apostles in the New Testament, they not only defend these doctrines, but for those who deny or distort these doctrines, the New Testament uses harsh, strong condemnation, strong language of rebuke 
because those who deny these doctrines are apostates and false teachers. And those three categories, just to remind you, were a right view of the authority of Scripture, the Word of God, a right view of the gospel, that's the work of God in salvation, and a right view of, go back that to that for a second, a right view of the worship of God. In other words, you have to have a right understanding of who God is, so you worship him in spirit and in truth, a right understanding of the gospel that we're saved by grace alone, apart from works, through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that Scripture is our highest authority. So we submit to the Scriptures because we submit to Christ. We rely entirely on the person and work of Christ for our salvation, and we worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And if those doctrines, those categories of doctrine are attacked, if they're undermined, if they're distorted or denied... To do so is to actually move outside of the boundary markers of biblical Christianity. And that's important because when we get to the Middle Ages, what we find is that these doctrinal pillars begin to come under attack. And so, for example, a right view of the Savior that we must worship God in spirit and in truth it begins to come under attack through the elevation of the veneration of Mary and the saints. Uh, Roman Catholicism still today presents competitors to the pure worship of God by venerating, praying to, bowing down before, burning incense to, and relying on, even for salvation, the saints and in particular, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Roman Catholic Church has made Mary a co-redemptrix, a co-mediatrix. In other words, Christ alone is our redeemer, but Rome says, no, Mary is also a redeemer. Christ alone is our mediator, but Rome says, no, Mary is also a mediator. Rome has elevated Mary to be the queen of heaven, such that they sing praises to Mary, they pray to Mary, and they rely on Mary for their salvation. Well, that's an obvious attack on pure and undefiled worship. Then secondly, we have a right view of salvation being attacked in the Middle Ages by the elevation and eventually the full establishment of the sacramental system. So within Roman Catholicism, justification is not the entire work of Christ on my behalf. Instead, It is me cooperating with God to earn my own righteousness. So within Roman Catholicism, within the sacramental system, if I sin, I have to pay for my own sin, and I do that through what's called penance. And if I don't do that well enough in this life, I go to a place called purgatory, and I spend however long it takes to get pure enough through my own effort to enter into heaven. And then finally, you have the authority of Scripture coming under attack through simply the elevation of papal authority and the traditions of men. And if we were to look in the New Testament itself, uh, we could look at many places, but right, John 4 is where Jesus says that those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
And Galatians chapter 1 is where Paul says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different than the biblical gospel, that person is actually accursed. And it's in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus tells the Pharisees that they had elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. So you can see in the New Testament that these pillars are pillars that must be protected, but in church history, these pillars began to be attacked. And they began to be attacked as those man-made traditions assaulted the truth of a right view of the Savior, a right view of salvation, and a right view of the Scriptures. I also just want everyone to appreciate my really cool PowerPoint. (laughs) No, okay, I'm making fun of myself because this is really cheesy. Okay. Now, if we were to look at sort of a timeline from uh, the days of Constantine, Constantine was the emperor all the way back in the year 312 who in a battle for control of Rome called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, he professed to become a Christian. And as a result of his conversion, after he won that battle, the very next year in the year 313, he issued an edict that brought peace to all Christians within the Roman Empire. And from that point on, all the way through the Middle Ages, the Roman Empire even the part that eventually fell and kind of became the nations of Europe, it considered itself to be Christian. But when Rome became Christian, the Christianity of the Roman Empire also began to be influenced by and infected by certain elements of Roman paganism. And so the seeds of corruption really were planted in the fourth century and then Over the subsequent thousand years, those seeds of corruption bore really, really bad fruit. And eventually you have Christendom, which is a word that encompasses sort of the political side of a Roman kingdom with the religious side of Christianity. You have Christendom becoming something that is moving farther and farther away from biblical truth. Now, I just want to show you some examples. So here on this timeline, the dotted line kind of represents an increase in uh, Roman Catholic corruption. And you can see things like, uh, so we have the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and it won't be long after that that we have um, uh, saints replacing the pagan deities. So in... The 16th century, one of the reformers named John Calvin wrote a treatise called A Treatise on Relics, where he talks about where prayers to the saints and the veneration of the saints and all that kind of stuff came from. And he argues, and I think convincingly, that what happened was pagan Rome prayed to a pantheon of deities. There were deities who were, you know, sort of the the god of this or the goddess of that, And you prayed to different deities depending on what you needed or depending on what region you were from. Well, when the emperors made everyone claim to be a Christian, suddenly you had pagans who weren't really converted. In fact, the way that Calvin says it, he says says Rome was baptized without being converted. 
you had them simply change the names. So instead of praying to this pagan god or that pagan god, they start praying to this patron saint or that patron saint. So the idea of prayers to the saints, the veneration of the saints, the idea that different saints can help you with different things, this all comes out of paganism. And it began to become increasingly popular over time. In the 5th century, we have Mary labeled the mother of God. Uh, This was actually at one of the councils, the Council of Ephesus. And initially, the reason Mary received this title was not to elevate Mary. It was instead to actually protect the doctrine of the deity of Christ in his incarnation. Is that baby in the manger man only? Is that baby in the manger the God-man? Well, the baby in the manger is the God-man. So how can we emphasize that? Maybe we can refer to Mary as the bearer of God. Well, the problem is that initial attempt to protect the doctrine of the incarnation had an unintended consequence, which was by giving Mary this title, Mother of God, it elevated her status within Roman Catholic circles. And again, as I've mentioned, from that starting point, Rome has added all sorts of undue accolades and elevations, promotions to Mary. We have the elevation and corruption of the papacy. We talked about that a little bit last week, how especially in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, the papacy was utterly corrupt. I mentioned a book last week by Eric Chamberlain, or two weeks ago by Eric Chamberlain, called The Bad Popes. So if you're really interested in studying that history, that would be a book that um, you could look at. There's some pretty disturbing stuff in that book because it was a very corrupt time. It felt like uh, the, even what the author of Kings and Second Kings discusses when he talks about how one king became king after the next, usually because he killed the king in front of him, that same thing was happening with the popes. In fact, we had one pope, uh, Leo V, who only was pope for two months before the guy who killed him became pope after him. So it's that kind of, it was like mafia meets Christianity. And I'm not talking about like at camp, you're playing mafia. That's not the kind of mafia I'm talking about. I'm talking about you know, the real, the real mob where we have gangs of people trying to put their leader in the position of pope because to be pope meant to, that you were not just the pastor. In fact, it wasn't at all about being the pastor. It was about being the king of Rome. Uh, you had the development of the doctrine of purgatory, which I already mentioned. You had the veneration of icons and... Um, really all sorts of false worship, really. The veneration of icons is just a form of idolatry. You had the emphasis on relics, and that came largely out of the Crusades because as people took uh, pilgrimage to the Holy Land in order to you know, go and, and fight Muslim armies in that part of the world, they would often return and claim that things that they had picked up along the way had some sort of biblical significance. So, for example, people would come back with pieces of wood that they said were part of the cross. And one historian actually made the comment that if you took all the pieces of the cross from all of the churches in Europe, you would have a forest of crosses. Just to give you an idea of the kind of 
sort of superstition and other things that went on with that. And then eventually you have the development of the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view of the Mass, that in the Mass, the the bread and the cup actually become literally the physical body and blood of Jesus. And then you also had finally in the year 1215, the official dogmatization of the sacramental system, which is that works righteousness, works-based model of salvation. Now, Roman Catholics will say, well, salvation is by grace, but they'll say it's by grace plus works. And if you look in Romans 11, verse 6, Paul, talking about salvation, says, if it is by works, it is no longer on the basis of grace, otherwise grace is no longer grace. You cannot add works to the gospel of grace and still call it grace. So this gives you an idea of the development of the corruption that was taking place in the Middle Ages through the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox versions of Christendom, really the two halves of what came out of Roman Christianity. Now, in spite of all of this corruption, along the way, there still were true believers, those who were not giving in to this kind of corruption. God always has his remnant. You can look in 1 Kings 19. It's Elijah in the wilderness wondering if he alone is left. And God says, no, I have 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. God always has his remnant. But it's helpful to understand that starting with the conversion of Rome to Christianity, Christianity began to convert to Roman paganism. That shift took a long time. It was a gradual process as the traditions of men were elevated above the word of God. But by the time we get to the 13th century, we can say with clarity that Rome is fully apostate. All right, a few other things here. So in the year 1215, we have a council called the Fourth Council of the Lateran or the Fourth Lateran Council. And the reason that council is significant, it was a pope named Innocent III. He was misnamed that. He was the third pope to take the name Innocent, but he was anything but that. He actually represented the height of papal power in all of medieval history. But at that council, the Fourth Lateran Council, something significant happened. It was where the Roman Catholic Church officially dogmatized. In other words, they made it part of their official doctrine the sacramental system. So the sacramental system being implemented is obviously very significant because from this point forward, in terms of official Roman Catholic doctrine, the gospel is lost. When people ask me, and they do ask me sometimes, hey, you teach church history, when did the Roman Catholic Church become the Roman Catholic Church? Well, that's not a very easy question to answer. Or maybe they'll ask it this way. When did the Roman Catholic Church go bad? (laughs) Uh, uh, When did they become apostate? When did they cross the line of like no return in terms of doctrinal corruption and a lack of faithfulness to biblical Christianity? 
Again, not an easy question to answer because each of these doctrines, if we were to go back and look at that previous slide, each of those doctrines has its own history in terms of how it developed over time. We could say from an organizational standpoint, the Roman Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church in the year 1054 when it split from Eastern Orthodoxy. But from a doctrinal standpoint, I would argue that Rome became officially apostate in the year 1215 when the sacramental system was officially adopted as a replacement for the biblical gospel. Which means that we can still find true believers within the previous Western church when we look back through the centuries. And we talked about some of those guys last week including Anselm of Canterbury and Bernard of Clairvaux. Now, there's another thing that happened in the 13th century, and it is the development, as I have on that second bullet point, the the development of a doctrine called the Treasury of Merit or the Treasure House of Merit. And this doctrine taught that Again, based on the sacramental system, you have to be good enough to get into heaven. And in fact, if you look at the Roman Catholic Catechism today, you'll see that it says that in order to enter heaven, you must have the righteousness necessary. Now, how do you get the righteousness necessary to enter into heaven? Well, they would say faith in God puts you in sort of a a grace-filled relationship with God wherein then you can cooperate through your obedience and earn the righteousness necessary to enter heaven. So at the end of the day, it's about your works that get you into heaven. Well, obviously, we know that we are sinners and that we're not going to be good enough. And so they developed this doctrine called the Treasure House of Merit, which said that's no problem. The saints, Mary, even Jesus, but the saints and Mary, they they were so good that they earned extra credit. So they, they got into heaven and actually had extra merits left over. And those extra merits are collected in this heavenly account almost like a heavenly bank account of all of the extra credit that was earned by all of the saints who are way better than any of us. Now, again, I just want to say very clearly, this is not biblical doctrine. (laughs) This is Roman Catholic teaching that developed in the Middle Ages. So just in case I'm not being clear, I'm not advocating this. I'm just helping you understand why the Reformation is necessary. So The extra credit stored in this heavenly bank account, well, how do people access it? Well, according to this doctrine, again, from the 13th century, the 1200s, and then into the 14th century, it was that the Pope was the one, as the representative of Christ on earth, who had the ability to dispense this extra credit. So if the extra credit is in a heavenly bank account, the Pope is the one who has the debit card. And how is it that the Pope can access this extra credit and actually dispense it to you? Well, he does this through what's called indulgences. An indulgence is a temporary form of forgiveness. So you do something wrong, you need to have it forgiven so that it doesn't count against you and make you have to spend way more time in purgatory. You need an indulgence. And so... Starting in the 13th century, the 
the doctrine of indulgences began to develop. And indulgences are usually something that you earn through one of the acts of penance. So you do penance and you can earn an indulgence. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church still believes in indulgences. Pope Francis gives out indulgences. Now, Pope Francis is kind of a unique pope. Even most Catholics are kind of wondering where Pope Francis is at. He's making all sorts of headlines because he's doing all sorts of things that are very contrary to even Roman Catholic tradition. It used to be a rhetorical question. Is the Pope Catholic? Today, nobody knows. (laughs) I mean, read the headlines. But in any case, so this indulgence system, based on your penance, you can earn an indulgence. Well, one of the acts of penance is charity. So it didn't take long for the Roman Catholic Church to connect your charitable donation to an indulgence. This became known as the sale of indulgences. It's much like a contemporary prosperity, health, wealth preacher kind of model. You send us your money and we will give you some sort of spiritual trinket. In this case, we'll give you a certificate from the Pope that says that you are forgiven of some sin that you've committed. That idea, the sale of indulgences, will become very important when we get to the Reformation. Okay, so we have the sacramental system, and then we have the development of the system of indulgences. We have major infighting, even among the popes, so that in the 14th century and then in the 15th century, the papacy actually moves to France for 70 years. Finally, there's a pope who has the courage to move it back to Rome. The French cardinals get super upset, so they elect a rival pope. And so in the late 1300s, we have two popes, both of them elected by cardinals, both of them claiming to be the true pope. Finally, there's a council in the early 1400s in Pisa, and they elect a third pope. So now we have three popes, all claiming to be the true pope, all excommunicating and anathematizing the other popes. Finally, in the year 1414, there's another council, the Council of Constance, which puts an end to this papal schism by the year 1418, and they essentially say none of you were the true pope, and they elect another pope as the only pope, Martin V. Okay. So... I tell you all of this because I want you to understand that when we get into the 14th and 15th centuries, Christianity, or better said Christendom, in Western Europe is really messed up. It's dominated by the sacramental system. People are being told that if they want to be forgiven, they have to do all sorts of acts of penance, including giving what little money they have to the Roman Catholic system so they can build giant buildings in Vatican City and getting certificates of indulgence in return. And even the papacy itself, people are having to choose which pope is the true pope and which pope am I going to believe You also have to understand that most people at this time in Europe are illiterate, and the Bible itself has been kept in the Latin language, even though the people of Europe don't speak Latin anymore. And so they're entirely dependent on whatever their local priest is willing to tell them about what to believe. So Western Europe is in a very, very dark time spiritually when we come into the 14th and 15th centuries. Okay, so by the late 1400s, the Roman Catholic Church in Europe was in a desperate 
It was in desperate need of reform. The good news is that in spite of the corruption, in spite of the apostasy, in spite of all of this, the Lord is going to raise up some, again, forerunners to the Reformation who, from a human level, are going to lay the groundwork for what takes place in the 16th century with guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, John Knox, and others. So the three pre-reformers that I want to talk about this morning, and here again I'm showing off my mad PowerPoint skills. This represents a timeline, and so we have Peter Valdo all the way back in the 12th century, the um, 1100s into the early 1200s, and then we have John Wycliffe in the 14th century, that's the 1300s, and then John Huss, or Jan Hus, if you want to say his name a little bit more accurately, but John Huss all the way in the 15th century. And I want to tell you a little bit about these individuals and how God used them, again, to lay the groundwork for the Reformation. Here's where they are in terms of placement in Western Europe. So Peter Valdo was from Lyon, which is in modern-day France, not too far from the uh, Italian Alps there. And then you had John Wycliffe in England, and finally John Huss in Prague. So Sam, I appreciated the announcement this morning about the Reformation tour, and uh, certainly you are correct, Dr. Bloomfield does have a lot of energy, but uh, going to places like Prague and... Vienna and Geneva and those places sounds really wonderful. So you can see where these men line up in terms of geographical placement. All right, let me tell you a little bit about these three forerunners to the Reformation. Peter Valdo. Um, we don't actually know if Peter was his first name. We know that he was, uh, again, Waldo, or sometimes it's actually pronounced with a V sound on the front and an S sound on the end, which is more like Valdez. But Peter Valdo was a merchant in Lyon. He was a businessman who only cared about making money. That was his goal in life, not too different than many people in our own day. Valdo came to Christ by reading a testimony, a biography of a fourth century man named Alexius who had come to faith because he was convicted about the fact that he loved money more than God. And when Valdo read that account, the Lord used that to convict his own heart that he also loved money more than God and he renounced his love of money, and as a sign of his repentance, actually sold all of his possessions and committed himself to being a preacher for the rest of his life. Now, some interesting things about Valdo. Valdo wanted to have the official approval of the Roman Catholic Church. That's because you have to understand in Western Europe at this time, there was no other church. There was only Roman Catholicism. So if you were going to operate legitimately as some sort of minister or priest, 
You had to get approval. And he actually went to Rome seeking approval, but was denied. And when he came back, he told his followers, in spite of what the Pope says, I must obey God rather than men. That's from Acts 5.29. That's where the Apostle Peter told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. And some people think that's where he actually got the nickname Peter. So Peter may not have actually been his birth name. It may have been a name given to him because he was willing to defy papal authority in order to follow what he knew God wanted him to do. Another thing that's really interesting about Valdo is Valdo knew that the people, the lay people of Europe needed the word of God in their own language. So he hired a couple of priests to translate from the Latin Vulgate into the Piedmontese dialect that was spoken around the area of Lyon. So they're actually translating the word of God from Latin which obviously Latin itself is a translation of the Greek and the Hebrew, but translating from the Latin into the common language so that people begin to hear the word of God in their own language. Well, this is revolutionary. Now, I know we take it for granted, right? You wake up in the morning and you're like, hmm, do I want to take my New American Standard or do I want to look more spiritual and take my legacy standard? (laughs) I mean, it's a tough choice. Some of you are like, hmm, do I want to take my new living or my NIV? No, nobody at Grace Community ever has that conversation in their head. They're like, is it the NAS this morning or is it the LSB? Some of you are laughing because you're like, I literally thought that just this morning. Well, whatever choice you made, it was the right choice. We take having a copy of God's word in our own language for granted. But at this time in history, the people of Western Europe did not have the word of God in their own language. In fact, when they went to church, everything was in Latin. So all they did was what they were told to do. And the Roman Catholic system, because it was so corrupt, was keeping them imprisoned in the darkness of unbelief. And then you have guys like Valdo coming along and saying, we have to get the Bible into the language of the people. There's really three important characteristics of Valdo and his followers. His followers became known as the poor men of Lyon, again, because they weren't about money, they were just about preaching the gospel, and eventually become known as the Waldensians or the Valdenses, sometimes is how it's pronounced. But three important things. Number one, a commitment to the word of God in the language of the people, and then a commitment to the authority of scripture above the authority of the Pope. And that was a revolutionary concept because prior to this, people just assumed, well, the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. He's the representative of Christ on earth. He's the head of the church. So when the Pope speaks, God speaks. That was the assumption. So for someone to come along and say, actually, when the Pope speaks, if it's different than what the Bible says, the Bible outweighs and trumps the Pope. That's a brand new concept, and it's a very important concept. So the authority of Scripture over the authority of the Pope, 
and the need to get the Bible into the language of the people, and then thirdly, the need to preach so that people can understand. So Valdo believed that lay people could understand the Bible and even teach it to others without having to become a monk, go to a monastery, be ordained for the priesthood, and give your life to the Roman Catholic system. So this was massive. Now, what's interesting is because Valdo was doing this and he had not been approved by the Roman Catholic leadership to do this, his actions constituted criminal activity. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago that in Europe during this time, there really is no separation between church and state. Yes, there's a distinction between the papacy, the cardinals, and the magisterium of the church and the emperors or kings of different regions, but the state always protected and enforced the religion of the church. So that if you were considered a heretic by the church, you were also considered a criminal by the state. As a result of this, Valdo and his followers were highly persecuted. Now, there's some really interesting stories about the Valdensian movement. Number one, the Valdensians considered the scriptures to be what they called the pearl of great price. And in fact, when Valdensian merchants would go from town to town, they would, there are stories about how they would interact with common people and they would say to them, you know, I know you want to buy these goods, but can I give you something that you can have without cost, the pearl of great price? And they would give them a small little portion of the scriptures in their own language. Not a complete Bible, but just a portion of the scriptures. According to tradition, Valdensian families actually memorized large portions of Scripture. I love this because they knew if Roman Catholic authorities ever found them, they would confiscate their copies of the Word of God and destroy them. In fact, honestly, all the way up until the 1950s, Roman Catholics were taking translations of Scripture and burning them. It wasn't until Vatican II in the 1960s where the Roman Catholic Church kind of softened its stance on people having access to the Bible, but that's another story. They would memorize large portions of Scripture, the Waldensians would, so that when their copies of Scripture were taken away and destroyed, it, those who escaped could reconvene and they could actually recreate the Scriptures from memory. Just an amazing commitment to the Word of God. And again, a commitment to the authority of Scripture over the authority of the Roman Catholic system. What's really interesting is that this movement started with Valdo in the 1100s. That's prior to that council where the sacramental system was officially approved, which means that the forerunners to the Reformation, this pre-Reformation movement, actually predates by just a couple of decades that final point of apostasy within Roman Catholicism. So we have this sort of unbroken chain of witness to the truth through the pre-reformers going back to that prior season in Roman Catholic history before the entire Roman Catholic system went apostate. And when we get to the Reformation in the 16th century, there will be some reformers in Switzerland guys like John Calvin and a guy named William Farrell. Farrell, in particular, will go down and meet with Valdensian leaders 
and the Valdensians will join the Reformation effort in the 16th century. Really amazing in terms of the testimony of Valdo and his followers. Now, I'm sure at some point, as Roman Catholic authorities were searching for this man and his followers, that some soldier at some point asked the question, where's Waldo? <laughs> That's not where that comes from, by the way. All right. Sorry, I just I have to get my dad jokes in. It's, it's a requirement. Let's go from Peter Valdo to John Wycliffe. So Valdo represents a lay movement. In other words, it was a movement of common people, merchants, sort of this emerging middle class, lay preaching, and uh, again, just a wonderful movement, but it wasn't a movement of scholars. When we get to the 14th century, the 1300s with John Wycliffe, we begin to see this pre-Reformation movement actually taking shape within academic circles. John Wycliffe was a scholar. He was a scholar at the University of Oxford. And Wycliffe is actually known as the morning star of the Reformation because of the way that God used him. And much like Valdo, Wycliffe knew that if we were going to change people's hearts and minds, we had to do so through access and exposure to the Scriptures. Even from a biblical standpoint, I think this is so important to understand. If you go back, for example, to 2 Chronicles 33, 34, and 35, you have Josiah, the boy king. He became king at eight years old. And during his reign, there's a revival and a reformation in Judah. And if you look at that story, you'll find that the catalyst for that reformation was when Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law in the temple. The scriptures had been lost and they were rediscovered. And then if you were to fast forward to the book of Acts, you would find multiple times in Acts, in Acts 4 and in Acts 6, and I think it's in Acts 12 again, Luke actually personifying the word and talking about how the word went forth and the word multiplied and the word grew. And the point I'm making is that every true revival whether it's in biblical history or in church history, the catalyst for that reformation is always the Scriptures. And that's because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, right? How will they hear without a preacher? And what is it that the preacher is preaching? He's preaching the Word of God. It's the Word that reveals the truth of the gospel so that James and James 1 can talk about the fact that we were saved by the Word, the, the Word implanted. It's the Word that sanctifies us because it points us to Christ, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We grow in grace through the pure milk of the Word. So it's the Word of God that always accomplishes the work of God because the Holy Spirit takes His Word and uses that its truth to confront and convict the sinner, to draw the sinner to saving faith, to introduce the sinner to the person of Jesus Christ, and then through the word of Christ to grow that sinner in Christ's likeness through sanctification. 
So if you don't have the Word of God, you don't have the gospel. And these forerunners to the Reformation understood that. So John Wycliffe, a professor at Oxford, actually sets out to translate the Bible from Latin into English. And he and his fellow scholars at Oxford complete that task in the 1300s. Wycliffe himself translated, we think, the Gospels and maybe parts of the book of Acts, maybe a few other parts of the New Testament. And then some of his other scholars there at Oxford helped complete this task so that the Word of God is now in English. Now, it's not as good as the later translation that will be done by Tyndale because Tyndale actually goes back to the Greek This is a translation of the Latin, sort of like a copy of a copy. But still, it's something. And Wycliffe's followers become known as Lollards, which we think is almost an automatopoeic word, probably something that was used as a derogatory uh, pejorative by Wycliffe's enemies. But they would go out throughout England, and they would sometimes sing and even read the Word of God in English to anyone who would listen. Now, Wycliffe had major enemies, but he was protected by the Queen of England, who was a big supporter, and also the brother of the King of England. So he had political protectors such that Wycliffe never faced execution in his own life. He died of natural causes. However, A couple decades later, Roman Catholic authorities, so mad at John Wycliffe for doing this, for making the Bible available to people, that they dug up his bones and burned them in effigy. He didn't care. Uh, He he was in heaven. He was fine. Uh, That didn't didn't ruin his day. Uh, Because he understood the scriptures, he confronted Roman Catholic corruption. He confronted things like the doctrine of transubstantiation. He confronted unbiblical doctrines like uh, mandatory celibacy of priests and other such nonsense. He called the Roman Catholic system to account. He actually had the nerve to call the Pope Antichrist. And he did that not in sort of the you know, the book of Revelation sense of the Antichrist, but in the sense of 1 John, 2 John, that those who go out and claim to represent Christ but actually undermine the truth about Christ are of the spirit of Antichrist. And so like the Waldensians, Wycliffe understood that Scripture is the authority over the Pope, and he understood that we have to get the Word of God into the language of the people so that people can understand what is being taught in the gospel. And so here you have a quote from Wycliffe. Though there were a hundred popes and all the friars in the world were turned into cardinals, yet should we learn more from the gospel, that is the scriptures, than we should from all of that multitude. He's like, I don't need a bunch of religious scholars. What I need is the scripture. Another quote from Wycliffe, he says, Certainly it were less cruelty to keep men from bodily meat and drink and make them to die bodily than to keep them from hearing the gospel and God's commands, which are food or life to the soul. So he was the one who said, I want to make sure that, you know, even a plowboy in England 
is able to understand the scriptures more than the Pope in Rome. I love that. Well, then we get to finally John Huss. Now, as I mentioned, the Queen of England was a supporter of John Wycliffe. She had actually been a princess who grew up in Bohemia, which is the modern-day Czech Republic. As a result of that, there was a significant transference of ideas between England and Bohemia at the time. And so John Huss, who grew up in Prague, came to discover the works of John Wycliffe. John Huss was also a scholar. He taught at the University of Prague, and he was also a preacher. He preached at a church there in Prague called the Bethlehem Church, and he would preach, they think, up to 3,000 people a week. Now, I've had the opportunity to visit that church, and there's like nowhere to sit. It was a standing room only kind of event because there were no chairs. But they all came and listened, and they were fascinated to hear him preach because he preached not in Latin, but in the Bohemian language. And again, this was transformative for the people in Prague at the time. John Huss, in his later years, wrote a book, and this book was called On the Church, De Ecclesia. And in this book, John Huss made the radical and at that time very controversial claim that Christ alone is the head of the church. Now, when he said that, as I mentioned earlier, there were actually three popes, all three popes claiming to be the head of the church. And John Huss had the courage, the moxie, to write a book where he said, none of them are the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. Well, if Christ alone is the head of the church, what does that mean? That means that his word is the authority for the church, not the teachings and traditions of the popes and the cardinals. And you can see here in this quote that he's saying that you know, to stand up to the Pope when the Pope contradicts the word of Christ, to stand up to the Pope is not a sin. It's actually a mandate. Christians are those who must side with Christ over the papacy. Well, in the year, uh, in the year 1414, John Huss was invited slash summoned, be a better word, to a council that was in the Holy Roman Empire at the time, modern-day Germany, a place called Constance. He was promised safe passage, and so he left the political protection of the king of Bohemia, and he came to Constance for this council to defend his views. Again, what was his controversial claim? Christ alone is the head of the church. After he arrived, the person who had promised him safe passage was told by Roman Catholic authorities, you don't have to keep promises to heretics. And so after being there for just a few weeks, he was arrested. He was put in a dungeon at first down near the city sewer system, which if you can imagine a medieval city sewer system, you can imagine how horrible that would be, and eventually placed in a cage on the side of the castle. 
After 10 months of imprisonment, he was brought for a trial. This is in June of 1415. The trial lasted for several weeks. It was a total mockery of a trial. He wasn't even really allowed to defend himself. And the end of that trial led to his execution in July of 1415. He was taken outside the city of Constance, and he was burned at the stake. Now, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he sang a hymn even as he died. But John Fox, writing 130 years later or so, says that at that moment, this is a very famous story, that John Huss said to his executioners, Today you cook a goose. Now, I have to explain that for a second. John Hus, Jan Hus, Hus in Czech means goose. So he was really, he was from a place called Husenitz, which sounds like Busenitz. I think that's really cool, but <laughs> Husenitz, which means Gooseville. So he was John of Gooseville, so he's literally John Goose. He said, today you cook a goose. That's where our English expression, your goose is cooked, actually comes from. Today you cook a goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arise from the ashes whom you will not be able to silence. And he died in 1415. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses roughly 100 years later in 1517. And there were those like John Fox looking back who said, Martin Luther was that swan. In fact, there's a swan on the Luther coat of arms. And the Reformation was the voice that could not be silenced. Now, is, did that really happen? Did he really say that? I don't know, but I love the story. <laughs> and if you're familiar with John Piper's series of short biographies, they're called The Swans Are Not Silent. That's the name of that series. Where did he get that name? He got that name from the execution of John Huss. Now, I need to bring this all to a close here. When we think about the pre-reformers, I want you to walk away with a couple of just key ideas. Number one, they were committed to the authority of Christ above the authority of religious tradition or any other human figure. Number two, they were committed to the scriptures and specifically to getting the scriptures into the language of the people. And number three, they recognized that you don't have to go to seminary or to a monastery to be able to understand and study the Word of God. That, or maybe I should better say, those convictions represent a paradigm shift that allowed in God's providence for Martin Luther to come along in the 16th century and for the full-blown Reformation to take place but it started with the catalyst of God's Word. And if you were to go to Prague today, there's a plaque at the library there in Prague that shows John Wycliffe gathering kindling and then John Huss lighting a spark and finally Martin Luther carrying a torch that he lit at their fires. And I think that's an accurate way to depict it. Luther didn't see himself as being the first He saw himself as standing in a long line of godly men 
who are committed to those core convictions. Scripture's my authority. I need the Word of God to be saved and sanctified, and I don't need a PhD to understand the gospel. That's encouraging because those same convictions are convictions that resonate in our hearts. And even today, as we go to church in the next hour and hear the preaching of God's Word, it is exactly that, the authority of Scripture in your own language. And we know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what God uses to change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the examples of faithfulness in church history from men like Peter Valdo, John Wycliffe, and John Huss. We do pray that as those who have such easy access to the Scriptures, that we would never let our familiarity breed contempt or apathy, but instead that we would understand that it is the pearl of great price, that this is precious, precious truth, truth that has been preserved, protected at great cost, truth that comes from you, from your Holy Spirit, truth that points us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can be conformed by your Spirit into his image. And we pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.